Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine, where we chat to some of the most successful authors about how they plan their day to get the most out of creativity and their ideas. Now this week, we are living up to that billing, i got to say. Uh, one of the most successful authors of recent times, Kate Moss published the multi-million selling Longer Doc trilogy uh, over the end of the noughties and the start of the teens as well. Uh, Labyrinth won Best Read of the Year in the 2006 British Book Awards. Uh, it was the second biggest selling book in the UK that year as well, after The Da Vinci Code. Uh, she followed that up with Sepulchre uh, and Citadel as well. Now she's back with the second book in the Burning Chambers series. It's called The City of Tears. We talk about how she plans all the little intricacies of the book that, that many would forget, I think, just to make the world of her thrillers utterly believable. You can hear how much she plots before she starts, so she can sprint to the finish. And she goes into some detail about her writing day and how it's normally the things that you can't plan that have the most impact. These are the things that influence the refining of my writing day um, more than anything that's to do with craft or my own uh, desires, if you like. And I think that's true for most writers because most writers I know, not all, but most writers I know write at home. And of course, everybody listening to the podcast now has, is in that same position because everybody since March has been on and off working from home, pretty much, um, who, who would ever be writing. So it's about that. It's about finding your workspace within a domestic setting. It's finding the ability to be an author out in the world, taking into consideration all your other responsibilities. So that's really more how I've refined my process than anything else. The only thing I would say is that um, I believe very strongly that as a writer, all we can hope for is that each book we write will be a little bit better in terms of skill, craft, um, you know, concentration than the novel before. And that is my aim. One, to tell a jolly good story that people will love reading but secondly to feel that I as a writer get better. It's a brilliant chat this one. Kate is a fantastic guest uh, so stick around there's more with Kate Moss this week in Writer's Routine. Yes hello welcome along to Writer's Routine. Uh, my name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for finding us for coming back for listening. Uh, I'm very excited about today's episode. 
Ever since I recorded it, I couldn't wait for you to hear it, and I want to know what you think about it over at writersroutine.com. Been trying to get Kate Moss on the show for ages. Like, when I first started the podcast a few years ago, I made a list of of dream authors that I wanted, um, but probably knew that I couldn't actually get because they'd be far too busy, Uh, and Kate Moss was on that list front and centre. Not just for her incredible best-selling work, but I'd, I'd heard her interviewed before, uh, and I thought she just spoke with, with such a clarity that it would be brilliant to hear her discuss her writer's routine and writing space and some tricks on how she gets the story down. Now, her longer doc historical thrillers shot her to huge success. Uh, she's also published gothic thrillers, short stories. She's adapted novels for the stage. Uh, she's written plays. Her books have been translated into 38 languages. She's been published in more than 40 countries. Uh, and her new series is The Burning Chambers. Uh, the second novel in that is The City of Tears, which is out right now. It's all about the wars of religion raging across France and a marriage that could see the country reunited at last. But something happens which changes everything. Now, you can find out more through the chat. Kate talks about where the idea came from, uh, also how much she knows about the entire series and how thoroughly planned it all is. Now, also, because this is like meaty historical fiction and thriller, um, there's a lot in there. So we talk about how she researches and uncovers what she needs to accurately place her story in that time, and also how real-life history impacts on what the characters really can and what they can't do. You can hear about the best-selling work Labyrinth that shot her to fame and how much of an impact that's kind of had over everything that she's worked on since. Uh, Plus, you can hear her golden rule of writing uh, and why you need to learn to write anywhere as well. It's a brilliant chat. I said it before, I'll say it again. Seriously, Kate was extremely generous with her time. Uh, So let's get down to it with Kate Moss talking about what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I am sitting at a a small desk with um, a tablecloth on it, which is at right angles to my main desk. And on that desk, I have my laptop, which is what I use for creative writing. So I've got a desktop, which has all the business on it and internet and all of these things. But this little desk is just for creative work. And I found that's really a good idea, if you can, to keep the the business side of things and all the papers and mess and all the rest of it separate from where you're, you're just imagining, you know, where you're making stuff up. Diving into that a little bit, and I don't expect you to get psychoanalytical on me, but what do you reckon's going on there? Why do you need these two separate spaces to to get the story out? I think, I mean, it, it's a great luxury that I can do that and I've got space to put a little desk in. I think that all of us use uh, now computers and screens all of the time, e- even more than ever before at the moment in the pandemic, of course. And therefore, it's like the separation between your creative self and your business self and your work self, if you like. And I think that it's really, really helpful um, when you're writing novels in particular, but nonfiction as well, that when you sit down at that screen, you know that what it is, it's between you and the characters, it's between you and the plot, it's you and the story, and that you're not going to suddenly, when you're bored or it's not going very well, check your email or look on Twitter or any of those sorts of things. So I think that separation is a very healthy way of just kind of keeping your creative time a little bit protected. So you're there on the desk with your laptop. Um, Talk to me about 
What's around you? Have we got art on the walls? Is there inspirational trinkets on shelves? Uh, there is, there's more stuff on surfaces in this room, which is my study, than probably any other space in the house. <laughs> so I have at the moment um, a ring light on this desk, um, which has become my very good friend doing lots of interviews from home uh, for the publication of my new novel, The City of Tears. I've got... Um, several things on the walls, a very old poster that I bought years ago, which is of a green and white and a misty lake in the Lake District. And I had it framed in quite a garish frame, it's got to be said, but it was something I did for myself when I was about 17. And I feel a great deal of affection for it. And then on the wall behind me, I have a large uh, poster of Languedoc, the southwest of France, um, of the Cathar Crusades. Uh, So all of the places where massacres happened, where burnings happened, where sieges happened. And of course, that was a lifeline uh, when I was writing my novel Labyrinth, uh, which is set between 1209 and 1244. And that has now is really faded because it's uh, in direct sunlight and the map is quite faded now, but I love that. And next to it, I have a very old gilt mirror, uh, which belonged to my mother. Uh, My wonderful parents have both um, passed on now, my father in 2011, my mother in 2014. Uh, but the room that is now my study was their kitchen. We were a multi-generational household and they had uh, their own sort of annex as part of our house. And my ma loved this kitchen. Um, and when she died, I decided that I would kind of take it over and come and sit in here and work in here and feel close to to the spirit of both of them. And my there's a big uh, earthenware pot about a foot and a half high that's full of my dad's old walking sticks which he loved very much and I suppose you won't be surprised to know that on every spare surface there are bookshelves and books and um, I'm afraid at the moment because I'm in promotion mode for the new novel and have just finished writing a piece of non-fiction the floor is a filing cabinet so there's a lot of paper on the floor at the moment. (laughs) Now um, what about the practicalities of book writing around you? Um, the, the novels you write are, you know, fairly thick in historical research and, and geography. If I were to walk in, would I see plot points, post-it notes, um, maps knocking all over the place? You would not know what book I was working on unless you looked at the low shelves behind this little sideways desk where I write. Because what I do for each new project is move all of my research books for that book onto the shelves behind me so that they're within reach. So there's a lot of bookshelves in in the space anyway. Um, and But behind me are the books that either I'm about to read or I'm using at the moment. Um, there are lots of maps, but they are all held in big box A4 files and a lot of photographs because my novels in particular are a combination of mystery, history and landscape. And it's always about, you know, I think historical novelists have to be detectives. We have to be architects, uh, not architects, archaeologists. Um, And always we're looking for the city beneath the city that we can see. And we're always trying to imagine the land as it was, not the land as it is. So I take a lot of photographs, which I either have on my phone, but often I print. And the reason for that is It's the tiny stuff that you cannot get from a book. So if you're writing a scene when, uh, as I often am, when a character is running away from soldiers or something, um, which way does the sun go? 
So does their shadow give them away or not? And so for me, uh, the photographs are about that. They're not just about what anybody could see. They're about how do I need to know the land and the light for my um, for my plotting for the storyline. So that's really as much as I have. I have a chalk blackboard, which I sometimes scribble dates up on, but I don't have post-it notes and I tend to keep, it's in my, all of that stuff is in my head and then the box files and these magical shelves behind me. You're talking about which way the, the sun is setting, which way the shadows are falling. How important is that element of realism to you when you're writing um, these historical thrillers? It's really important to me and it's actually quite important to readers. So I once made a mistake and had a grave um, that, and I, you know, I was rather pleased with the slightly purple piece of writing maybe about the sun setting on the grave. And I got a lovely letter from somebody saying that's, that's really beautiful and I love the novel and all the rest of it, but the sun sets the other way. <laughs> um, like, ah, yeah. Um, so it's partly that because I think readers want to know they can trust you. So if you've got basic geography wrong, even if you're telling them about a city 400 years ago, um, then there, there's a, it's that little chipping away at their trust in you. And if they don't trust the world you're creating, then why are they going to fall in love with the characters? Because truthfully, everything about landscape and research should be in, invisible, if you like. You know, what people read historical fiction for the story, for the characters, for the plot, for the jeopardy and the momentum and the excitement. And so it's my job as the creator of this world to bring it to life, but with as much truth as I can. Um, so that is, I think it matters to readers and it matters to me. But as I said, it's also about plot points. Um, if you write, as I do, historical adventure, where a lot of stuff happens, you know, people do not sit around in my novels thinking about things. There's a lot of action. Um, and as I said, a lot of jeopardy. Uh, Something like the way the sun sets, so whether you could be given away by your shadow or not, could be a crucial plot point. So all of these things are just part of research, if you like, and they're about the authenticity of the world you're asking the reader to buy into. My pattern of work is that I research and I research and I research and I do what I call book research, which is archives, libraries, museums, reading all the history, reading all the military strategy, reading the theology, you know, everything that is about that being in the libraries. Then I do what I think of as my foot research, which is walking the landscape, being in the place, getting a sense of the texture, um, the granular nature of life there, whether it's in Carcassonne or in the case of the city of Tiers, Paris, Chartres and Amsterdam. And so sitting at the desk to write is something that comes late on in my process. And given my books are meaty tomes, you might be surprised to know that I'm a sprinter. So I need to have all of these things done and in my head or in my box files or on my shelf behind me before I start writing, because the pace of an adventure, historical adventure matters a great deal. So if I'm writing a scene where um, my lead character, um, you know, my hero, Minou Joubert, is running away um, or is trying to take an important message um, in the nick of time. I need that energy of her fear and her uh, desperation to be on the page. And so I cannot be stopping 
in the middle of writing a scene like that to check what kind of shoes she would be wearing or what kind of weather there might have been at that moment or what she'd have on her head, um, anything that might distinguish her and, you know, the historical veracity. I need to know all of those things and have them. Of course, when I've done a first draft, I check and double check and double check. And however hard you double check, there's always something that slips through. But my first draft is all pace and all emotion. And then it's my second draft and third draft where if you like the scaffolding, the architecture, the double checking things comes in. Is this your eighth novel now? Yes. So and four nonfiction and three plays. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Um, <laughs> how smart are you with your research by now? When you're writing a book set in a particular time zone, do you know exactly what you need to find exactly what you're, you're looking for in these books? Or is it more of an open ended, you, you know, we'll kind of cast the net wide and see what I can pick out? It's the, the second of those. Um, I have great deal of admiration for people who say, and often use researchers to do this, which is why they can use researchers and say, could you go and find out about X, Y, and Z? For me, it is a deep dive, full research into the world. So I I can say with almost 100% confidence that I've read pretty much every book on Huguenot history I could lay my hands on. And I need 5% of it. But every book that I read gives me more confidence with being able to put that period of time, that religious conflict on the page. And also, I don't know what I'm looking for, because out of the research sometimes comes details and background of the story. Because what I do is write imaginary characters with a sort of, I hope, compelling and fast moving storyline against the backdrop of real history. So when I'm researching, I will discover things that I had no idea that will immediately f nourish my plot. So in the City of Tears, for example, uh, the great moment in Amsterdam, when Amsterdam, the great Catholic city of the Netherlands, as, as it will become, um, becomes in the space of an afternoon, <laughs> um, is turned Protestant after 40 years of Catholic rule. Not a single person is killed. In one of the bloodiest centuries we know, the 16th century and the Reformation and religious civil war everywhere, nobody was killed in Amsterdam in that May in, you know, the night in the 1580s. And consequently, until I did that research, I didn't know how that would influence how I could write the plot. Whereas, you know, I'd been writing about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, where 3000 people possibly died in the space of a few hours in Paris on on the 24th of August, and maybe 70,000 died in copycat massacres, the rest of, you know, the length and breadth of France thereafter. So these details are what actually help drive my plot. So one, several of my characters might not make it out alive of Paris, because that is the reality of the death rate in Paris in 1572. But then when I'm writing about the alteration a decade or so later in Amsterdam, I know that if I choose for one of my characters to die, that is nothing to do with the history that happened. So if you see what I mean, it's the research gives me ideas for the plot. There's a fine balance there, isn't there? Because when you said you know, there's, there was a huge death rate in Paris at that time. So that influences your decision that by the law of averages, some of your characters have exactly. to die. Exactly. And it's, it's, in, exactly. it's incredible that you're, 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 you're sticking to those historical facts while you're writing well, fiction. 
Well, I don't think it should be um, unusual to tell you the truth. I think that any of us who write historical fiction, of course, we're writing a novel, we're writing a story, but you owe it to the past and the people who lived and died for their beliefs to try to get it right. So I am one of those that thinks that if you don't want to uh, respect the real history, respect the legacy and the memories of the people who were there, then create an imaginary world. That's absolutely fine. Or don't use any of the backdrop of real history. But I think this is just my personal view, but I think it is dangerous um, to not respect the history. And I think that often what happens is that history then becomes um, dishonest and people in the future, and indeed the present, we see this happening now, use a false version of history in order to justify what's happening now. We are who we are because of our ancestors and what happened before. So I, it's a badge of honour, if you like, when I get um, a letter from a historian saying, I love the City of Tears. I was fascinated about what you said about Amsterdam during the alteration. I hadn't come across that before. Um, you know, and I, I feel that that is really, really important, that people do read historical fiction for information as well as um, for enjoyment and for excitement and for the characters. Um, so, you know, I, I feel very strongly about this, but a lot, of, a lot of people not so much. So the alteration, you know, was in 1578, and it's a period of history that people don't know very much about. But when we're looking at enormous strife at the moment, not least of all, and the ways in which people are manipulated into behaving in certain ways or are told lies in order to make them you know, behave in certain ways, I think with um, the alteration to be able to say in a novel, but you know what? Thousands and thousands, millions of people died in religious uh, wars during the course of the 16th century. But on this day, they did it without loss of life, i.e. it can be done. And so it matters. So that's why I spend so much time um, trying to get that right, if you like. You mentioned earlier that you're writing on the laptop. Now, in, um, in happier days, I know that you uh, split your time uh, between uh, England and, and, and down in France, which I'm at, and you, you know, you're a phenomenally successful author I imagine that involves traveling a lot how good how good are you yeah. at writing on the go on planes and trains good really good um because one of the I mean it's it's obviously an enormous privilege to be able to be a full-time writer I've been very lucky to find a readership and be allowed to make this my real job you know nobody becomes a novelist thinking that they're going to make a living out of it or it's going to be their full-time job so when it happens and it happened to me when I was 45 um it is joyous and I still am really grateful for that that I'm not writing in the very early mornings or very late at night around um a, a, you know a, a paid job but that the consequence of that is and this is also a wonderful thing in the old days you go out on tour to promote your book. You do a lot of talking about writing. And sometimes that leaves much less time for actual writing. And so it's it's essential, really, that you learn to be able to write anywhere. Because if you're on a three-week tour, if you didn't write, you would often find that you weren't writing for months and months and months. You would always be behind. So I write well in hotel rooms. I write well in airports. I write well on trains. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, I mean, I'm very, very happy where I'm sitting now um, in my study at home in Chichester in Sussex. 
um, it's wonderful. And it's the place that has got all my research and all my books and all of these things. But I can write anywhere um, if needs must. Now, th- this is quite a niche show. The listeners, the, the listeners <laughs> to this want right. to know some, some quite nerdy details. So um, what software are you writing on on your laptop? Um, if I say word, is that a sensible answer? If, if that's what you use, it's a fine answer. Yeah, well, I, I think that's what I use. Yes, <laughs> word. I what, use word. Um, do you have any strong, staunch font opinions, Kate Moss? I do, actually. <laughs> I've never been asked that before. And, I, it, and it is an essential really? thing for me. Really? You've never been me. asked it? I've never been asked that before. Thousands of interviews. So that's that's maybe. Oh my lord! I've done yes. So I like uh, Bookman old. Is it Bookman old style? Look at it now. Yes, there's two Bookmans. There, it's great. I can't remember what it's called, but I always click on that Bookman old style. I think it is. And it's um, firstly, it's back to that idea of having a little laptop, which I only write novels, plays and my nonfiction books on, you know, not journalism, not all of that. But for me, that is the creative typeface. I find it easy to read. I like the look of words in that font. Um, It feels like my creative font. Um, And it feels quite personal to me. Whereas when you, you know, all of the Calabri and Times New Roman and Ariel, they, they don't feel personal to me in any way whatsoever. And so when I'm writing something, that is, I always, always, uh, when I'm sent a document to fill in and it's, you know, if it's an interview or something, I always turn it into that font because then I feel like, here we go. This is about imagination and creativity and, and doing your stuff. You're absolutely right to distinguish between when I'm writing because my pattern when I'm researching and editing is different. But when I'm actually writing, so you know, knee deep in a book or a play. I go to bed very, very early, um, sort of half past eight, nine o'clock-ish. And I will be at my desk at about four in the morning. Um, And I do that not because um, I think that's big or clever, (laughs) um, but because that is when my creative brain is at its best. So if you like, I go to sleep dreaming of the characters in the book And they kind of do their stuff while I'm sleeping. And I wake up and it's that liminal time between sleep and wake. When if you live in a busy household, which I have always done, um, it's before the light comes up. It's before the dog needs feeding. It's before uh, the dishwasher needs attention. It's before other people are up talking. I'm a carer. So it's before those responsibilities kick in. And it's always, I mean, even before I was a carer and even when I had little children, it was always the time for me that naturally I wake when I'm writing. And then I will wait at work insofar as I can with my caring responsibilities or other commitments. But I try to protect my writing time as much as I can, apart from my caring responsibilities. Um, In my pajamas and slippers and dressing gown, which now everybody works like that anyway, um, but between about four and twelve. Um, And I will stop and have breakfast at six and I'll probably have another cup of coffee and stuff like that at about nine. And I will have lunch at about half past 10 and then by 12 I'm done. And so that leaves the afternoon free for editing, uh, emails, doing all the other work that I might have to do, family responsibilities, going to the shops, you know, whatever else it is. 
So I've never been able to creatively write in the afternoon. I can't edit in the afternoon. But the dreaming, as I think of it, the spinning the story out of thin air, that happens in the early mornings when there's nothing to disturb me. And there is nothing better than sitting at this space in the little laptop and hearing the first blackbird and, you know, being kept company only by birds. So it's eight hours with a, with a few breaks in the middle for some food. With breaks, yeah. It's, um, you know, that's quite solid going. That that's a, It's a full work day. How do you find your energy uh, ebbing and flowing through that time? Are you pretty good at just kind of head down and, and blast into the keyboard? Uh, I When I feel I need a break, I take one always. So that's it. I, in that, you're right, it's eight hours, but I... Uh, I, you know, I stop to have some breakfast. I then stop and have another cup of coffee. I, in that time, I will probably go in the gym um, and run um, for half an hour um, because as everybody listening to this will know, uh, looking after your back, particularly as you get older, is really important. And um, sitting completely still, you know, getting more and more stiff is not a good idea. Um, so I've always, I always take that quite seriously. Um, and then, you know, I'll have an early lunch um, so I, I make sure that I, I'm, I'm sensible. I don't, the only time that I sit here and don't move and become, you know, sort of comatose in the book, that sort of almost like book coma that you get near the end is when I'm at the last 10 days of finishing a book, when it's about to go to my publisher. And at that moment, it's always, however long I've taken, however long I've given myself, it's always a gigantic essay crisis. Um, and, um, and I, and, you know, and I always become a desperate and mad person towards the end. And my family knows, you know, they just look at me like, oh yeah, the book's nearly finished. We can see she looks a bit mad, <laughs> you know, so, um, and I, you know, the big change I made in my life, um, after delivering the City of Tears to my editor was I made the decision to give up caffeine because when I, I always do a bit of a detox when I've delivered a book because um, the combination of coffee in the morning and wine in the evening is kind of what I'm living on and nerves and adrenaline. And I, I, so I always do a kind of detox, like a dry January, as it were, when I've given a book in. Um, but I had such bad headaches from the caffeine withdrawal. I thought, you know, you need to not go back down that route. So now I have decaf <laughs> and that took a while to get used to. How um, are you finding it now? It's fine, actually. Well, because I delivered this book actually quite a long time ago. I delivered it in September 2019 because it's been delayed. It's the longest gap mm. between writing a book and publishing it I've ever had in my career. And that's obviously because of the pandemic. It was delayed for six months for publication. Um, but it's absolutely fine. But it took some getting used to. Um, and now, you know, it, so I think it's that it's it's the things that we all know. Get outside, have some fresh air, um, give yourself treats, eating you know nice things that you like. Have something to look for, a nice meal to look forward to in the evening. You know, don't sit at your never eat at your computer. That is my big piece of advice to everybody. If you have to go to the kitchen to get a banana or a bag of mini chenets or a piece of marmite toast, you know, um, all of these things, then that gives builds in the breaks that you need. Whereas if you eat at your computer, you can just get stuck here. And the work is never better for that. It's always good to take little breaks as much as you can. Um, what constitutes a good writing day for you, Kate? Are you following a word count? No, I don't follow a word count um, at all. I feel that that's, for some people, that is exactly what they need. But for me, 
it's I write until I feel I've I'm done. And so on a day like that, you know, some days will be four till 12 and it will be shooting along and I'll be really pleased with it. And other times I'll stop at 11 and think, you know, that's enough for today. I've got to a good place to stop. So I never make that decision when I sit down, but I do write every single day. Um, as my lovely Ma used to say, Christmas or raining, um, seven days a week until I've got a first draft. And then I take a break and then I work seven days a week on the second and the third drafts. And um, so I, ne- it, I never let up, but I have not found it helpful to have um, an external measure of the book because a word count is it's just numbers. Are they good words? Are they the words you wanted to put down? Um, so I, I sit here until I feel I've done as much as I can. And then I stop. Talk about just generally putting words to a page. How much of an overwriter do you tend to be? Earlier, you said that on your first draft, it's this fast, frantic adventure. Um, do you often find yourself cutting huge swathes that, that just aren't working anymore? Uh, yes, I do. Because um, the the downside of letting my first draft be all emotion, as it were, kind of sitting here, I've got all these ideas, I've got a sense of the characters. So let's just see what they're going to do. Let's just start now and see where the book goes. And with The City of Tears, it was very marked in that I had all the history. I knew that there were certain key moments like the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. I knew my family and their enemies would be there, but I didn't know what was going to happen to them. And the only way for me to kind of learn the story is to write it and then think, oh. And what I discovered with writing The City of Tears was that it's a lost child story. And that I was not expecting, but that turned out to be the personal story um, in front of the the major history. So for me with the, the all emotion, it means that I just let myself go. I don't go back. I don't keep working on chapter one until it's perfect. That's for the edit. The real hard work comes in the editing and the second and third drafts. For me, the best way is to just blast something down. And the way that I explain it sometimes to students when they're asking about this is saying it's like building a house. Until you've built the house, you don't know what color you want the walls to be or where you want to put the furniture. And until you've built the whole house, you can't begin to give it its character, to give it its its specialness, if you like. And that's what the first draft is like. So, of course, that means that I will go off on tangents. I will let storylines run. Then when I come in the kind of cold light of day to look at it, I will think, yeah, well, that subplot is essentially the same as this subplot. You've got two elderly women who are nuns. You don't need both of them. <laughs> you know. Um, so I do cut a great deal. Um, and then I will also start to add things. So I think, okay, this scene is great, but it needs a bit. It needs to be let out a bit. It needs to breathe a bit more. This scene is too uh, telegraphic. Um, you actually need to give more context. You need something else, an external motor to come in from outside to give this some energy. So you know, the, for me, the real hard work of writing is about the editing, the, the redrafting, not the first draft, which is almost always just a joy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll be back with more from Kate Moss in just a sec on the show. Before then, a very quick reminder that if you enjoy these podcasts, if you've learned anything that has helped the way that you write your stories, anything over 130 episodes now, if you think they're worth a few quid a month, um, you can help us out. You can do just that. Support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. For that, you get our thanks, our unending devoted thanks you get some merch as well, and there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. Now, it doesn't need to be a lot. I mean, it's it's a tough time for, for so many people, and I'm a little bit timid even talking about it, but if you do love what we do, if you can spare a few dollars a month, if you want to see it carry on for us to keep bringing you these chats with the best authors as often as we can, you can help make that happen. Um, just head to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Kate Moss talking about her new novel, The City of Tears, the second in the Burning Chambers series. Uh, We hear more about that story and where it came from in this part of the chat. Uh, Also, we talk about how she moves on from the Longadoc series, one of the most successful novel series in recent years. When When you've done that, how do you reset and start again? Kate will tell us. And you can hear why her characters are waiting in the wings for her too. Now we pick things up talking about her writer's routine and more how it's changed over time and how much of that is really in her control. When I was first writing, my children were young. You know, they were nine and six when Labyrinth came out. Um, I think that's right. Uh, They're now obviously (laughs) grown-ups. So they, I don't have a daily responsibility for children and the school run and all of these things, all of which I share with my husband. So I was in a very privileged position compared to lots of uh, women who write, um, who have very much less support or, or sole parents. And, you know, and I'm sure there are, there are men listening to this for whom that is the, the case, that they are joint parenting with, with people or even sole parenting. Um, but then for 10 years, I've been a carer. My parents lived here. Um, my dad needed a lot of support um, and, and my wonderful mother-in-law who's lived with us for 25 years has been absolutely fantastic but then the last um, two and a half years has needed uh, you know daily care um, and so these are the things that influence the refining of my writing day um, more than anything that's to do with craft or my own uh, desires, if you like. And I think that's true for most writers, because most writers I know, not all, but most writers I know write at home. And of course, everybody listening to the podcast now has is in that same position, because everybody since March has been on and off working from home, pretty much. 
um, who, who would ever be writing. So it's about that. It's about finding your workspace within a domestic setting. It's finding the ability to be an author out in the world, taking into consideration all your other responsibilities. So that's really more how I've refined my process than anything else. The only thing I would say is that um, I believe very strongly that as a writer, all we can hope for is that each book we write will be a little bit better in terms of skill, craft, um, you know, concentration than the novel before. And that is my aim. One, to tell a jolly good story that people will love reading. But secondly, to feel that I as a writer get better, slightly fewer adverbs, slightly more concise, uh, getting to the meat of the story a little bit quicker, uh, no repetition, trying to make sure that there are not passages that are indulgent to me as opposed to a gift to the reader. So I take that sort of idea of being a writer, trying to improve my own skills as I write very seriously. And the thing that has helped with that has been writing plays uh, because so much of a play is, obviously, it's just the dialogue. That's your responsibility in a play. And it has made me focus on every word a lot more closely than I had ever done before. Uh, because, you know, a long play is 22,000 words. My novels are 130,000. <laughs> so it's a big difference. Now, we'll get to The City of Tears in, in some detail in just a sec. Um, I very quickly want to take you back to the point when you're in between series. I know that you've written uh, standalones and you've nonfiction and you've done plays. But when you've written uh, the Languedoc series, which is phenomenally successful, and then you're starting something new with the Burning Chambers, how hard was that for you, starting a new series when you've got um, many, many, many fans all <laughs> across the world who are expecting something from a Kate Moss novel? Well, I mean, that's a lovely way to ask that question. And sometimes when I feel that sort of sense of I don't want to let readers down, I then just have to remind myself and pull myself together and go, you are very, very lucky, Kate, that you have people who are waiting for your next book. So don't turn that into a problem. Just be grateful that they're there waiting. The gap um, was quite significant for me. I mean, I've mentioned being a carer. Um, there, it meant that there were periods of time after the Longadoc trilogy. My father was very ill while I was writing Citadel. It was the end of, of, of that time and he died before the book came out. And I was in a position where I wasn't free really to travel for research. And my historical novels are so grounded in place. They are grounded in the history and the mystery and the landscape of Longadog mostly. And therefore, I wasn't really able to start my next big project, which is partly why I turned my eyes closer to home and wrote ghost stories inspired partly by Breton and Cathar legend, but mostly by my home of Sussex. Um, I wrote a novel called The Taxidermist's Daughter, which is a thriller set in 1912 in Sussex, which I've just adapted uh, for the stage uh, for Chichester Festival Theatre, which was a wonderful challenge, but boy, was it a challenge. And I therefore had to adapt my writing and wait. So the idea of the Burning Chambers Quartet, which is 300 years of history spanning from 1562 to 1862 and traveling the globe, I was not in a position to start that project and I was not in a position to do that travel. So 
once I was, um, and I published The Burning Chambers in 2018, it has felt a complete joy to be back doing a big historical series and to plan four books before I'd even started the first, which is not how I worked with the Longer Doc trilogy. I wrote one, then I felt I'd still got something more to say, so then I wrote two. So they're called the Longer Doc trilogy, but they were never um, imagined as a, a trilogy of books in quite the same way. But the Quartet of Burning Chambers is absolutely um, a series of books, four books that will take us from you know, France in the 16th century to South Africa in the 19th. And it's therefore been a real joy to be able to go back to that kind of work, the traveling for research, being able to walk the landscapes. Um, it's quite intimidating in that it will be when I finished 12 years of research and publishing. Uh, the novels are coming out every other year in hardback. So that's eight years worth. And obviously, I've been researching for a couple of years before I sat down at my desk. So sometimes there is that sense. But during the lockdown, I've written a nonfiction book um, in between, which is actually about care called An Extra Pair of Hands, which will come out in June about being a carer. Um, and it doesn't stop me. This big big epic novel adventure writing project doesn't stop me doing other work. So I've done the play adaptation of Taxidermist Daughter and I've written a non-fiction in between as well. People genuinely feel that I must just be stringing them a line. But truthfully, the way that I work is I research all the history and I have my family, Minou Joubert and her husband Piet and their uh, children, uh, little Jean-Jacques and Marta, and then, you know, various sisters and brothers and their enemies over there. You know, all of these things, I have I have them. And they're waiting for me at the end of the burning chambers. Um, so what I know is when I started the City of Tears, I knew that they were going to be trying to decide in 1572 from the safety of their lands in Languedoc, whether to accept an invitation to go to the royal wedding in Paris in August 1572. Anybody who knows anything about the wars of religion in France will know that the most notorious engagement, as it were, of the wars of religion was the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in August in 1572, which followed uh, after the wedding on the 18th of August of the Huguenot Henry of Navarre to the Catholic Marguerite de Valois, which was supposed to bring peace to France. So anybody who knows their history will be shrieking at the page to Minou and Pete saying, don't go. <laughs> so I knew that would happen. I didn't know who would make it out alive. I didn't know what kind of story I was telling. I knew that they were going to go to Amsterdam, the great refugee city um, of Europe uh, of the 16th century, which took in so many of the Huguenots. Um, I knew that there was going to be the continuation of a storyline of the lost relics. I knew that their enemy was still going to be on their tail, if you like. So I suppose I had emotions. I had the real history. And the way that I describe it is it's like building a stage set. So I build the stage set and I know that the characters, the actors are in the wings. And then I sit down and I start writing and little by little they come out of the wings and they stand next to me. And then there's a moment when Minu, in this case, steps forward and it always feels the same and it always feels as if she's looking at me and saying, okay, come with me and I'll tell you what we're going to do. And that's what I mean when I say about my first draft is all emotion. So I have spent 
a long time building the stage set and the stage set is really solid and the actors are really clear in my head and they're there in the wings but quite what they're going to do that's up to them and me when we sit down at the machine now obviously I've absorbed a huge amount of knowledge over years because I was a publishing editor before I was a writer and so all of my adult life I've worked in and around books so a lot of the things that other people would see as external uh, processes in terms of planning, I have they are so deeply subconscious now that I, I don't recognize them as planning, if you like. And I, I'm sure there's an element of truth in that. But for me, it's about letting the characters have their head. And that's why The City of Tears was such a joy to write, because when I'm in Paris in 1572... Nobody wants just another, another retelling of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. We know what happened. But what matters is, what happened to my characters? What was their drama that is nothing to do with the big drama going on in the background? And only by writing did I discover that. Um, and it was really upsetting. I wasn't expecting it. And um, and from that moment, I knew what the book was. I knew, okay, this this book is about a lost child. And then, you know, then it then the story just comes. If you've got your characters standing on that stage for you, uh, with you rather, at what point are they tapping you on the shoulder, letting you know what's coming up? Is it is is it in that moment? Is it maybe a few scenes in advance? I guess what I'm I'm getting to is when you're there at four o'clock in the morning, how much do you know about what you're writing that day? I know what I'm writing that day. Um, I tend to have gone to sleep thinking about what I'm going to be doing in the morning. So I arrive to do it. And then that's why I stop in the afternoon and I let it all just continue to brew along. And then I think, oh, yeah, that, that would be great if I do that. It's very important. I think everybody who's listening will, will understand this. It's very important to catch your breath when you're writing a novel, to not just do right, one scene and another scene and another scene. You know, do your scene and then just just catch your breath. And then, oh, yes, that would be great. Because that gives the chance for the moment of inspiration, the moment of fun for you as the writer to, to, to sneak in and get, you know, don't be too formal all the time. Don't plan so that you cannot ever step away from your plan. Planning for many people is essential and really, really good and to have charts and to know what's happening in each chapter. But that can sometimes make the writing stale. So have a mixture of your planning if, if that works for you, but also let yourself have some liberty to let the characters have their head, as I said. So I, don't, I know what I'm doing that day and poss possibly the next day, but I don't know where I'm going to be in 10 chapters time. I have a rough idea of where I think I will be, but I don't quite know until I get there. You mentioned one of the re what you weren't able to... Um as in it was sorry it was tough writing citadel because you're you like to be grounded in the place you like to have traveled to where you're going to when you're at, because your books are so steeped in location and geography when you're writing these when you're imagining these places in your head how much thought are you giving to the words on the page that you're using to paint that picture um i'm thinking subconsciously all the time and consciously um, some of the time, because my stories are, uh, you know, they're plot and character led. And I think the difference between what is often called literary fiction and what is called often called genre fiction, although 
personally, I think those labels are unhelpful because I think the only metric for a book is, does it succeed in what it set out to do? And all the rest is noise. Um, but the, the, this is often the distinction, you know, between literary prize winning books and best selling books or, you know, although there's a crossover there. But I think that there is a distinction in that in what we often call literary fiction or what I always think of as exquisite fiction, the the idea and the language are possibly the most important thing with plot and character second to that. And I think in a lot of um, adventure writing or thriller or detective writing, the plot and character at the top with language and uh, ideas secondary to that. But it doesn't mean that I don't care passionately about the language I put on the page, that I don't sit there sometimes for ages uh, say, thinking that word is wrong. You know, that word is just not any use. It, do it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Or I haven't quite got under the, I haven't got the tone right. So I don't, I don't let it hold me up in my first draft. I write very instinctively in my first draft, as I've said. But when I'm doing the third draft, so all the architecture has happened, the plan, you know, the rewriting, the restructuring has happened, uh, the scaffoldings come down, if you like, you're now looking at the building and its glory. In the third draft, that is when I'm very, very careful about too much description there. You don't need all of that. That needs, you know, that sentence is too long. It's not clear. Um, so I would say the language, it, that the third draft is where I particularly pay attention to that. And lastly, when it's all done, when you're putting the final full stop on the last sentence, how good are you at letting it go, letting it be the readers and, and not <laughs> wanting to keep coming back and changing? I'm not bad at letting it go. I think that I have a, a superb editor for my fiction, uh, Maria Raitt at Macmillan, and I have a superb editor, Francesca Barry, at the Wellcome Trust for my nonfiction. And so it makes it a lot easier for me to let it go because I know that it is very far from being the book that will appear because they will make a huge contribution. They will see things that my tired old eyes have missed. Um, so I don't find that side of things too difficult. Um, I do, emotionally, it's very odd. When I was a publisher in the early part of the 80s, I remember very clearly what it felt like uh, for an author to come in. It was a really big moment when an author came in with their new book and it was a pile of paper and they handed it over in person to their editor. And quite often they'd go out and have a celebratory lunch before the real work would begin, you know, the next day. But there was a moment about which you said the end of the first process, the writing of the book on your own is over. It's much harder now because we all live at uh, in an amazing and wonderful, you know, connected world. But there is no difference to the feeling between pressing send to your novel of 130,000 you know, 30, words to pressing send to the, yes, I'll be there at five email. You know, the process is similar physically. So I think it's really important when you do let the book go that you do something to market. For me, this will not work for everybody, but I go, you know, unless it's obviously 10 in the morning, um, I will go and say to, usually to my husband, or possibly my sister or my mother-in-law or children, if they're here, it's gone. And well, I'll have a glass of champagne. 
because it feels, you know, I think it's really important to mark that moment before the next stage of work begins. And the advice I, again, always give to people when they're asking is it's, it's so important as a writer, uh, uh, you know, whatever you're writing, that you, you are proud of what you've done. You have to separate the joy of the process of writing from what happens to it. So everything that you have enjoyed doing about writing a book and delivering a book and reading the proofs and every single bit that happens before it goes out into the wider world, into the hands of readers. Because once it's out in the wider world, readers might love it or not like it so much or not even notice it. You might get great reviews. You might get no reviews. You might get half and half. You might get terrible reviews. You cannot let what other people think destroy your joy of the process. So I think at all the points at which you get a, you finish, you know, the first draft, the second draft, all of these things, mark them for yourself so that you keep power over your emotional response to your own work. And that, I think, has served me in very good stead. And I would also say my advice to everybody is never read your reviews and never read below the line. <laughs> never read below the line. You know, keep the joy of writing a book and being proud of it to yourself. And don't let other people, you know, rain on your parade. <laughs> And that is it for this week on Writer's Routine. A massive thanks to Kate Moss. What a guest. Come on. So generous with her time and with her advice. Her new novel, The City of Tears, it's out right now. It's the second in the Burning Chamber series. You can grab yourself a copy. Use the link that is in the episode notes wherever you're listening and we'll have it up at writersroutine.com as well. Now, you can leave us a review on Apple if you get a chance. Apple Podcasts, if that's how you're listening, make sure you subscribe as well. Um, You can support us over at Patreon and give us a follow on Twitter. We are at WritersPod there. Next week, we are chatting to C.K. McDonnell uh, about his brand new comedy page turner, The Stranger Times. Uh, I will see you then with C.K. next week on Writer's Routine. Bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.